to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi, the first Bible reading is um, from Psalm Psalm 36 and it's on page 552 in the Bibles in the pews. Psalm 36. An oracle is in with my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. The words of his mouth are wicked and deceitful. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. Even on his bed he plots evil. He commits himself to a sinful course and does not reject what is wrong. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains, your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. Both high and low among men find refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. Continue your love to those who know you, your righteousness to the upright in heart. May the foot of the proud not come against me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. See how the evildoers lie fallen, thrown down, not able to rise. The second reading is from Ephesians chapter 3. From verse 14, it's on page 1158. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Good evening. Uh, This morning, after I gave this sermon, I... I came down and there was this elderly woman who I'd never met before and she came up to me um, and said, you're Steve Beattie. And I was like, yeah. And she said, I've been praying for you for years. And I was like, what? Really? And it was just this really beautiful moment of 
me realizing that there are people at this church who are so faithful in their prayers. Um, So I thought as we are thinking about prayer this morning, I'd share that um, as a little encouragement because it was hugely encouraging to me. Um, If you haven't already, please open your Bibles up to that passage we just read in Ephesians chapter 3. Um, I think it's on page 1,158. What do you pray for? What do you pray for? I know that's a pretty broad question, but prayer is a pretty broad thing. Believers in Christ and non-believers alike pray. People from all different cultures and different backgrounds pray. What do you pray? And I wonder if that prayer that just popped into your mind can help us. I wonder if that thing that you pray for regularly that you were just reminded of can help us ask the question, what do our prayers say about our aspirations? What do the things we tend to pray for tell us about what we most desire? See, when I read this passage, this prayer um, of Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, I wonder about my own prayers. Am I praying too little? Do I desire too little? It's either that or I think, is this guy for real? Did he really pray that? Surely that's too much. But of course he is for real. And this is a beautiful and big prayer that I think can help us lift our aspirations and our desires for the things we pray for. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for other things or, the, or that the thing that you thought of is a bad thing to pray for. It's good to pray for all sorts of things. But I think this prayer can show us the incredible things a Christian can pray for. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians can be broken up into two petitions and two purposes that we'll look at in order. Um, In case you're wondering about the word petition, I don't mean the thing that you sign, I just mean a request. A petition is a request. So we've got two petitions, two purposes. Why didn't I just use the word request? Well, I like alliteration. So, we've got petitions and purposes. First, the petitions. Let's read together from verse 14. It says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, here's the petition. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. At its core, this is a prayer for power. Power distributed by God's Spirit. It's a prayer that God himself would do something in the inner beings of the men and women of the Ephesian church. Because Paul knows that actually nothing can happen apart from the power of God. It shows Paul's utter and right dependence on God for the good of his Christian brothers and sisters. So let's look at what 
Paul expects this power to achieve. In verse 17, read it with me. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It is a wonderful and mysterious thing that Jesus actually dwells in the heart of a believer. That when a person puts their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection to save them from their sin, Jesus moves in. He lives in them by his spirit. But that's actually not the focus right here. One thing we should note is that this prayer is that Christ is not that Christ would dwell in someone's heart as if they were just becoming a Christian. Paul's not praying that they would, the Ephesians, become Christians because they're already Christians. We know this from the first verse of chapter 1. Paul's writing, quote, to the saints in Ephesus, to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So Paul's not asking for Christ to dwell in their hearts as if he were just moving in for the first time. Rather, he's actually asking that Christ would now dwell in them in a new and bigger way. That Christ would now really dwell in their hearts. I think an implication of this is that if Jesus is going to really dwell, then it's going to take some effort on behalf of the believer to make that happen. Some things are going to need to change. To illustrate, imagine you were living in a share house with one other person, and due to circumstance, that person needs to move out, and you need to get a new person to move in so you can pay the rent. Fortunately, you live in Newtown, so you only have to wait two hours before you've got another housemate. But when that new person moves in, they're moving into your home. They're moving into the place where you feel most comfortable, where you have your life set up. But because they're also going to live there, you're going to have to change a little. You're going to have to adjust. You're going to have to let them change some things in order for this place to be their home as well. See, if they're going to really dwell there, they're going to move some furniture. They might change the curtains. They might get a different scent in the bathroom. (laughs) Paul's talking about a Christian allowing Jesus into their hearts to dwell more richly than he has before. And he's talking about Jesus actually having the right to change things about the believer. Things that might be uncomfortable to have changed. Church, I wonder, do you want that? Are you prepared for that? How do the rooms in your heart reflect Jesus' desires? But there's also another element to this idea of Christ dwelling in the heart of the believer through faith. As well as Jesus coming in and changing things, Paul is also talking about dwelling as a deep communion with God. He's asking God that the Ephesians would have something of a richer experience of Jesus in their lives. See, living the life of faith, there are rich experiences of Jesus to be had 
And perhaps in that case, Jesus is less like a housemate and more like a spouse. Now, I've never been married, but I hear it's great. Because as you dwell with that person and as that person dwells with you, as you learn to love each other, over the years, uh, you begin to have a deeper and deeper communion with that person. So this is the first petition for power so that Christ would dwell in your hearts. Church, do we want this? Do we aspire to this? That Jesus dwell in us? That he would not just change us, but that we would experience him in deep and rich ways. Okay, petition two. Are you ready? Let's read from the second half of verse 17. It says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is not a prayer that the Ephesians would love Christ more. It's not. the, The priority of this prayer is, in fact, that the Ephesians would know Christ's love for them more. Paul prays that the Ephesians would have power from God, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. This is remarkable. Because Paul sets up Christ's love as this vast and huge thing, as something that you can't actually understand. It's so good. And at the same time, he says you can understand it. Let's look at a couple of those things. First, why wouldn't you be able to understand it? Well, listen to how Paul describes Christ's love. Wide, long, high, deep. What's the sense you get from that? Yeah, that is really big, right? Listen to what the Bible says in Psalm 103. God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I read this quote a couple of weeks ago. It says, Christ's love is an ocean without shore and bottom. Aren't these great images? And I think they're along the same lines as Paul's rhetoric here. You can't see how far Christ's love goes. And you certainly can't scuba dive to the bottom of Christ's love. See, guys, it's these limitless dimensions of Christ's love that are at the heart of the Christian message. It's this incomprehensible love 
that sent Jesus to the cross, where he freely and willingly died to take the punishment for our sins. Right, so we can't know Christ's love because it's so great, but Paul said we can know Christ's love. That's a confusing idea, isn't it? This is how I think it works. We can know Christ's love for us as it has been revealed to us in the Bible. That is, when we read about Jesus saving death and resurrection on our behalf, and it's as we meditate on God's word in prayerful dependence that the Holy Spirit so powerfully works in us. So this is one of the amazing roles of the Holy Spirit. He enables us to understand the things of God as he's revealed them in his word. And the Holy Spirit produces faith in us that leads to salvation and maturity. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians have all the answers. But it does mean that if you're a Christian, you've tasted, you've experienced the goodness of God. And it also means that you're on a trajectory of a growing understanding of Christ's love for you. See, we may not be able to know Christ's love for us fully, but we can certainly know it truly and increasingly. So this is the second petition. For power to know the limitless dimensions of Christ's Love truly and increasingly. Church, do you want this? Do we aspire to this? To know the love of the Savior Jesus truly and increasingly. Let me just pause and reorient us for a moment. We've seen that Paul's prayer has these two petitions. The first one power that Christ would dwell in the believer's heart through faith, and to power to grasp the limitless dimensions of Christ's love. Let's move on to look at why Paul prays these things. Let's look at our two purposes. The first one is the second half of verse 19. Will you look at it with me? It says, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What on earth does that mean? It sounds like this great and mysterious thought, doesn't it? And at one level it is a great and mysterious thought. I think on another level it's simpler. That to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God is to be spiritually mature. Because you see, having Christ dwell in your heart more richly than he did yesterday and grasping Christ's love for you more than you did yesterday, that is spiritual growth and maturity. Do you see how the petitions and the purposes are interacting in this this passage? It's a cause and effect sort of thing. Let's just look at the relationship between knowing Christ's love and spiritual maturity, or this idea of filling. 
From verse 18, Paul prays that the Ephesians may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you see what's happening? Paul's saying that spiritual maturity is built on a growing understanding of Christ's love. But this feeling or maturity isn't just for the individual Christian. In fact, Paul's scope is so much wider than that. His prayer is that the whole church experience this feeling and maturity. So you remember that Paul is praying these things uh, for a group of Christians. In fact, in verse 19, when Paul says that you may be filled, the you is actually plural. See, at this point, we should all get our southern drawls on and say that y'all be filled. Or if you're a true blue Aussie, you might say that yous be filled. The focus here is not that the individual would become spiritually mature, but that the whole church would become spiritually mature. We see it too in verse 18 when Paul prays that they may have power together with all the saints. That sure takes the wind out of, out of our individualist sails, doesn't it? So we've seen that being filled to the measure of the fullness of God or being spiritually mature, is built on a growing understanding of Christ's love. It has a focus on the whole church, not just the individual. And the other thing I want to say about feeling or spiritual maturity is this, that it is displayed when the whole church is being built up together. See, let me show you briefly where Paul takes this idea of the mature filled church. If you skip down to the near the bottom of your page in chapter 4, we'll read from verse 11 to 16. It says, it was Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. It goes on. Then we will not be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's a lot in that, isn't there? But do you see where Paul takes this theme of being filled in the next chapter? He means that it's the whole church being built up into Christ, the head and that by each part doing its work. The last couple of verses in our passage are a 
powerful closing doxology in which we'll see our second and final purpose. But just before we get there, can I just take us out of our two-petition, two-purpose framework um, to read verse 20? And I think this shows us the reason why Paul is so bold in his prayer. And it's to do with whom he's praying to. So let's read verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. He's praying to the God who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. If there's any verse that should lift our aspirations, surely it's this one. Immeasurably more than what we can even imagine. Of course, this is to say that the God of the Bible is omnipotent, which is just a fancy word of, which means all-powerful. See, there are no degrees of difficulty for this God. And Paul knows it. Listen to the language Paul uses in verse 14, if you just skip up to the top of the verse. It reads, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So to use this language in a deeply patriarchal society, like the one Paul lived in, is to say that God is the ultimate father. Because in Paul's day, the father was the one in the family who provided all the family's needs. So Paul's saying something like, God is the ultimate provider. He's a heavenly father who doesn't just provide daily needs, but he has glorious riches to share, verse 16. And it's this heavenly father who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. It's no wonder that Paul shows himself to be so utterly dependent on God because he knows that all that he prays will only be from God, the Father. But there's more to say. These things aren't just from God. They're also for God. Which brings us to our second and final purpose. Let's read verse 21 together. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. See, the ultimate purpose of this prayer is that God would have glory for himself in his church and in Christ Jesus. So all of what Paul has prayed so far, Christ's indwelling, the believer grasping Christ's love, and the church being filled and mature, all of this is so that God may have glory for himself. Now we could spend a long time just thinking about this verse, because even though it comes right at the end of our passage, it is a huge thought, isn't it? But what I want to say tonight is simply that it is from God, 
from his power that he's doing these things in the believer and in the church. And he's doing these things for his glory. From his power, for his glory. And this is an amazing thing to take part in, don't you think? That God would choose to glorify himself in you when you turn to Jesus in faith or when you grow in faith or when the church is built up into the likeness of its head, Jesus. That's an amazing privilege. The Lord Almighty wants to do these things that we've been talking about uh, to make the most of that which is worth That's an awkward line. (laughs) To make much of that which is most worth making much of, himself. This is what it means for God to bring glory to himself. Shouldn't we want that as well? So how should we conclude? We started off asking, what do our prayers tell us about our aspirations? And I think we've seen that Paul's prayer for the Ephesians actually shows us a great deal about his aspirations for that church. We can see that he wants the Ephesian church to give Jesus greater authority in their hearts and in their lives. He wants the Ephesians to experience Christ's indwelling more richly. He wants the Ephesians to know the limitless dimensions of Christ's love for them more. And he wants the Ephesian church to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, together being mature in their faith and being built up into the head that is Christ Jesus. And he wants for all of that to result in glory to himself. Sorry, glory to God, not Paul. So my question for us to end is this. Church, do we want, do we aspire to these same things. Imagine if we did want these things and we were praying for these things, not just for ourselves, but for this congregation and for this parish and Christ's church everywhere. Imagine the maturity and the fruitfulness of a church that was together on their knees before God their Father asking for these things. And imagine the glory that would result uh, to God. But of course, our God is a God who can do even more than we imagine. So he can do this and much, much more. Would you pray with me to this God for just that? Let's bow our heads. Our ultimate Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great prayer. We thank you for the way it shows us how powerful you are and how you desire to have your church built up for your own glory. We pray, Father, that you would so lift our aspirations to be like Paul's, indeed to be like yours, Father. We pray for power, Lord that we might give Jesus greater authority in our hearts, that he would dwell there more richly than before. 
We pray for power, Lord, that we might together know how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us. We pray that you might fill us to the measure of your fullness, being mature and built into the likeness of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And we pray that this might result in glory to you in your church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au